Hello, friends, and welcome to Impact Everywhere, a podcast that searches for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. My name is Benjamin Von Wong, and today I'm excited to introduce to y'all Academy Award-winning filmmaker Louis Sayoyos. I first met Louis at a vegan sushi restaurant through a mutual friend. He didn't know it at the time, but I was a huge fan. One of his films, Racing Extinction, is one of the main reasons that I got into the environmental movement. Louis was a National Geographic photographer for 18 years, helping to kickstart the recycling movement through visuals and stories. In 2005, he started the Oceanic Preservation Society with the intention of using film as a weapon for conservation. What Louis has managed to do with his documentaries is the dream of every storyteller: to move people's hearts and change their minds. Which might sound cheesy, but wait until you hear him talk about the impact of his films. Today, we dive deep into the mind of a master storyteller and unveil the ingredients and process behind crafting the ultimate documentary capable of igniting social movements. This is Louis Sayoyos. I think that stories, certainly filmmaking, when told in the right way, is probably the most powerful weapon we have for social change that there is. The first film I did was called The Cove. I directed that film, and the idea back then was let's just see if we can get it at a festival. Like if we could just get people to see it, maybe we can get this to stop. And the film just went on this meteoric rise. It became the most award-winning documentary in history. It's the first documentary to. Sweep all the film guilds. Won Sundance and went all the way up and won an Oscar. And you know the awards were great, but that's not why we got into it. I didn't even know there were so many awards. The idea was that we wanted to solve this issue. But what I realized that each time you won an award, it gave us another platform to talk about it. And that film is about dolphin hunting in Japan. At the time, they were killing about twenty-three thousand dolphins and porpoises every year in Japan for human consumption. Even though the meat is toxic, all the meat that's been Tested in Japan over the last twenty years has been shown to have five to five thousand times more mercury than allowed by law if it was a fish. But of course, dolphins and porpoises aren't fish; they're mammals. So that became this sort of taxonomic loophole by which dolphin hunters can poison the people. There was actually a, a system being implemented in Japan that they were going to be spreading toxic dolphin meat to school lunch programs. Japan is interesting because you have to eat everything on your plate. So you're, they were actually being force-fed poison. You can't bring outside lunches. You can't say, "Oh, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to make my own food." No, you have to eat every, what everybody else eats. The film stopped that. I think the the last time that there was stats for 2017, there were 1,610 dolphins and porpoises killed. So it's like over. You could do the math on it, but it's over a 93% drop in dolphin deaths because of the activism around that film. There's also these sort of residual effects of the film. A woman that saw that film, we got really influenced by it, became the executive director of Blackfish, and she became vegetarian and vegan finally after seeing the Cove. There's sort of this, this cascading effect. It's hard to say to the metrics like what did this, therefore this happened. So I get that it's really hard to completely measure the impact of art, but are there any kind of studies that you've done or KPIs, key performance indicators that you aspire to or refer to in the pursuit of impact within the films that you make? There's some really good studies that have been done that show that to drive social change, meaningful, long-lasting social change, you only need 10% of the population to be 100% committed to an idea to drive social change. And I looked at the paper and it had like three pages of math, and I'm not a big Math guy, so I called up the 
lead author and I said, can you explain it to me in, in lay terms because I'm trying to understand this. And he said, yeah. He said, it's like if you're trying to create steam, you'll never be able to do it unless you get water to the boiling point at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, right? 100 degrees centigrade. But until you get up to that number, you're wasting your energy if you don't, you know, there's no real to create steam. He said, 10% is the boiling point for the exchange of social ideas. In other words, that, you know, you could have the pot on the stove and if it's not getting to 212, it's like you got warm water, but you'll never be able to achieve the effect you want. But once you get it to that point, it's, it's unstoppable. And that's what that was the cool part is like, you know, if you're an activist for anything, what you start to understand is that you don't need 51% of the population. The tipping point isn't over half. The tipping point is 10%. I absolutely love the way you put that rule. It's just so much simpler than the way we explored it in our episode three of the podcast with Will Mesner. Um, in some ways, it seems like what you're saying is very correlated to how people tend to overestimate what can be done in a single year, but totally underestimate what can be done in five or 10 years, because it's almost as if change takes forever to happen. And then boom, suddenly it, it just all transforms. I think it was in 1835, there was a race between a horse and a locomotive. The horse won. But after that, it never won. You know what I mean? <laughs> the horse never got any better, but trains kept on improving. There's a famous picture of the Easter parade in New York City at the turn of the century. The shot was done from the top of a 10, 12-story building, and it was like a sea of horses, except for one car. Like, sort of paint a picture here of New York City. There was 300,000 horses in New York City, 20,000 of them dying every year. The streets were filled with excrements, filled with flies. I had a grandmother who remembered New York City and said it was the stinkiest, foulest place. There's a lot of disease. And, and so the place, 10 years later, same Easter parade, it had switched. You know, so that now it was like all cars find the horse. 10 years later, you think, oh, that was back then, what this is now. But about 12 years ago, that's 2007, 13 years ago now, the first iPhone came out. We were on our flip phone. If we wanted to type a capital C, we hit the number two key six times. So these technological changes happen extremely quickly. And I think the same thing can happen once you introduce a solution, like the ideas in a film. When we talk to the Japanese press around the cove, we don't talk about the the humane aspects of killing dolphins the way that they were doing. They, they're basically harpooning them to death. And then they let them bleed over sometimes a couple hours in this little bay in Taiji, Japan. Because of the cultural differences, we hardly ever talked about how they kill them. The, the film was evident. I tried to use the word mercury in every sentence when I talked to the press in Japan because that's their Achilles heel. You know, they had a, one of the first industrial outbreaks in the 1950s. And there was a Minamata plant was intentionally dumping mercury illegally into the bay, infecting the fish there and the fishermen. And the cats were getting, they called dancing cat disease because they go around in circles and die. So part of it is the messaging of who you're talking to. I absolutely love that. That's such a great reminder. I feel like oftentimes storytellers sometimes forget that the people that they're actually trying to talk to don't look and sound like them. Uh, especially in the activism world, right? Because you're trying to convince a completely different segment of the population. I want to go back, though, to the sort of boiling point that you were talking about. How does one even reach 10% of the population? Like, where do you even start and how does it work? So we did this film called Racing Extinction. It was on discovery to try to hit that number 
10% of the population. Discovery is by far the biggest network there is. They have access to two and a half billion people. And they did something unprecedented. They released it across almost all of their channels, starting on a single day, but over the course of a week. And after the first day, 36 million people in 220 countries and territories around the world had seen the film one day. But we knew that even getting 10% of the population to see that film would be really tough. So what we did is these projection events. We projected endangered species on the United Nations. And then I wanted to do projections of endangered species on the Empire State Building. And this would be like a, a really interesting billboard. Nobody had ever done anything like that on that scale before on a building that was that, that prominent. And the film was already in the can. We already premiered it at Sundance. We essentially already sold the film. Our distributor said, oh, it's going to be a non-event. And you know, if you do it in August in Manhattan, the important people are going to be gone. The press won't turn out because by the time you can do projections, it'll be 9.30 at night. The press won't be able to pay for the overtime to have the press show up. So it'll be a non-event. And we did the event anyway. And I remember that we stopped traffic on Fifth Avenue like it was the Easter Parade. I remember looking down at one point and the traffic had come to standstill. There was tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people out in the street watching this event. And Extinction became the top trending story on Facebook and Twitter for four days worldwide. And I thought, we hit our mark. 939 million people within a week. That was a 10% of the population, right? We thought we can't get any more impactful than that. And then the Pope called. The Pope wanted us to project endangered species on the Vatican during COP21. So while world leaders were at COP21 in Paris at that year, deciding what humanity was going to be doing about climate change, the Pope wanted to remind world leaders that there's more at stake than just people. There's the rest of life forms all around the world are depending on humans to do the right thing. And I think just in the English language, we had 4.6 billion media views. There's about 600 media there from around the world. 225,000 people saw that event live in St. Peter's Square. Now, remember, all those people in St. Peter's Square, they all have cell phones. They all have social networks. So, we could activate by doing these massive projections events and making these sort of hero images. Everybody that was there was a photographer. By default, we made it so you couldn't take a bad picture if you were there. We left all the images hang for six or seven seconds. We made it entertaining. It was beautiful. My girlfriend, Lucy Shields, she did the sound for it. She used animal sounds, you know, so it was really haunting. It was really beautiful and ethereal that the only thing you heard in St. Peter's Square was the sound of these wild animals. These are some of the sounds donated by Cornell's Macaulay Library, mixed together by Lucy Shields. After recording this podcast, I couldn't help but reach out to Lucy just to see if I could get a copy of the soundtrack. It's a transport, you guys, if only for a second. Anyways, back to the podcast on how Louis accomplishes so much with so little. So... Our organization is small. I run a little organization called the Oceanic Preservation Society, and it sounds like it's a, a big organization, but there's, there's only three people full time. All this was done with just a handful of people. You have maybe several hundred people helping make the film, but at the end of the day, after you've collected all this material, it's just a few people in the edit room, ultimately trying to make this very, very potent weapon, which is film. You can make a film to make yourself feel good. You can make a film to be right, or you can make a film to be effective. Big difference. We did a film called The Game Changers, which is about plant-based super athletes. 
And our first place we tested it, we flew the crew down to Dallas, Texas, big meat eating state and showed the film to people that are meat eaters. Now, one thing that was interesting is we had a producer who had Final Cut. He's a bit of a science dweeb. And everybody was trying to tell him that, listen, that's just too much science. It's going to bore people to death. And he said, oh, no, this is really important. You have to have this in there. So, so, okay, you got final cut. What I want you to do is sit down at the front of the theater by the screen and look at the audience. Because the audience, they're not going to object. They're not going to tell you that it's getting boring. But what's going to happen is they're going to start to squirm in their seat. They're going to pick up their cell phone and their faces are going to glow blue from the, from the cell phone. When you look at the audience and you start to see the sort of communal shifting of weight in the chairs, that you lost them. And that started to happen as soon as the science came up. And by the end of the screening, he just couldn't bear to look at the audience because he knew. You feel it. Two people can argue. But when you're making a film, you're not making it for yourself. You put any other person next to you, you feel that energy of when it goes south. And then when you start to test it and then give people permission to be critical. We don't want to know who you are. Just tell us what you really think. If you want to be more critical and take the time, fill out the questionnaire and email it to us or send it to us later. And those were usually the most thoughtful answers that we got where people wrote these long dissertations of why they didn't like something, which is way more important than what they like. I love that you take the time to actually go out and test it. I mean, marketing folks do it all the time. It's this idea of A-B testing a product, and then they just look at the numbers and figure out which ones convert. But I feel like artists generally forget to test their product. They don't go out and say, hey, did it actually work on you? Because it's this really personal process. I'm curious, though. How do you actually know when something is done? By the time you're done with testing a film to see if it works, all you want to see in there is like, the film wasn't long enough. I wish I could have seen more of this. You know, that's when you know you've won. I think any photographer, any writer, any creative person, they have an ego and it gets hurt by criticism. But you have to take the criticism critically and say, this is not about me. This is about what I'm trying to produce. And I want it to look beautiful. I want it to tell a great story. But here's the difference. Hollywood directors, they say it's about butts and seats. The audience is $10 in a box of popcorn. That's all they care about. And I look at the audience. I think everybody that works on our films thinks the audience is a, a mind and a seat. What we're trying to do is to use that 90 minutes to change the DNA of the audience so that the audience comes out of that experience and they change. That's the critical difference. That's such a powerful way to think about it. How might we change the DNA of the audience? Amazing. It seems to me that every single time you work on one of these projects, you're trying to design and create trigger events. You know, events that can trigger an entire movement. What do you think are the key ingredients that you try to infuse inside of your projects to make them successful? I can't remember who said it. You know, Mark Twain's been attributed of saying that the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. And I think when you have great imagery supported by a great character and a great arc of a film, you're trying to create a series of electrical charges until you get out of the film and you, you feel like your DNA has been zapped by a freaking lightning bolt and rearranged. No, that's the idea. You want to make this so obvious that people go, aha, uh -huh, I get it. Now, with the game changers, I'm plant-based. I went to a slaughterhouse in 1986. I didn't change overnight, but I realized if you've been to a slaughterhouse, you know why they say if 
slaughterhouses that have glass walls, nobody would be eating meat because they're the most foul, despicable places in the world. Of course, nobody wants to go to one. Very, They won't let you in. But that was kind of the path. There's only about, I don't know, maybe 3% of the population that identifies as plant-based, or at least when we started that film. We know that it's better for personal health to eat plant-based. You know, about 80 to 85% of the chronic diseases we have, heart disease, diabetes, cancers, are caused by people eating animal products. We know that three-quarters of our infectious diseases are caused by a relationship with meat. We know that a lot of the environmental degradation is caused by eating meat. It's, it's by far the, the greatest cause of extinction events. Something like three quarters of available land that we have for humans is used for animal agriculture. It's the biggest cause of freshwater pollution, one of the biggest causes of, of climate change. About 14.5% of our greenhouse gases are caused by the animal production. But people aren't getting the message. And that's because people believe that it's normal, necessary, and natural to eat that way. So, until you address that, those concerns, you're just spitting in the wind. You know, it's funny to me because even as an environmentalist myself, I found my eyes kind of glazing over as you were going through the statistics because it's like, okay, okay, okay. But what grabbed my attention is when you started talking about human behavior, normal, natural, and necessary, right? Because that is a story opportunity. So tell me, how did you actually take this big statistical problem and convert it into an actual film? Most of the population, they're not eating animals because of the animals. They're eating meat in spite of it because they have this belief system that it's normal, necessary, and natural to eat this way. We're stuck at 3% of the population that for ethical reasons or for environmental reasons is, is going to eat this way. That we know this is better for ourselves, it's better for the environment, it's certainly a lot better for animals, but we're not going to get any headway unless we confront the facts that people believe this way. So, what we found was that people will listen to athletes and they'll listen to top medical researchers. So, we went to some of the top athletes in the world, world's most accomplished ultra runner. And now you have Scott Jurek, who is plant-based. He still holds the, the US record for the greatest distance run in a single day, 24 hours, he ran 165 miles. So, I called him up. We asked what he was up to and he said he's going to be running the Appalachian Trail. What a great story. He's going to be running like the Appalachian Trail is like 2,100 miles long. He's going to try to beat the record and try to do it in like 46 days. This is two marathons a day of 11,000 feet of elevation and decline every on average every single day. Do it continuously for, for 46 days. Now, I have never done a marathon in my life, but this guy's doing two of them in a day over rough terrain. It's certainly, using him as a metaphor for storytelling, certainly checks that box of you have the endurance on a plant-based diet. One of the world's strongest guys, Patrick Baboumian, was trying to carry more weight than anybody ever had carried in history, further than anybody carried in history. And he was like, I think 1,255 pounds, 10 meters was the record that he was attempting to do. And so, for strength, he actually, he was a, a bodybuilder and he actually got bigger and stronger when he went to plant-based, to a plant-based diet. So, strength, endurance, and then virility. We do this because people think if you eat meat, you need that for your sexual prowess. And well, it turns out that it's actually just the opposite. And the biggest killer in the world of all humans, no matter where you are, is heart disease by a large factor. But what a lot of people don't know is that erectile dysfunction is an early warning sign of heart disease because blood goes to all your organs and 
blood is it goes to a male penis and erectile dysfunction starts to happen first there because there's these very small arteries going to the penis. We did this t- for people who haven't seen the film, The Game Changers. We do this experiment where we take a, a device called a Rigiscan. It's basically a ring that goes around the base of a male penis and one around the head. And it's a basic, it goes like a seismograph. It's a computer. It goes under your leg with these two wires that go up to these rings and you can measure nocturnal erections. Because a guy will have about six to seven nocturnal erections in the night. And it's not related to sexual wet dreams or anything like that. It's just your body trying to keep blood flowing to a very essential organ. So what we did with some athletes, you know, these are collegiate athletes which shouldn't have any kind of cardiovascular problems. We gave them a a meat-based diet and we did the same thing, same people the following night. And on average, with a plant-based meal, they had a 10.5% larger harder erection. And this is the key, a 350% longer duration erection. So now this was a, a big clinical study, but when you have these very significant spikes in data, you know that you have something there. We went to the, the head of nutrition at Harvard's. We talked to, about sustainability. We talked to the head of sustainability at Yale. At Oxford, we would talk to people about climate change or Chatham House. So we went to the very top, top, top people in the field. So that became kind of like lightning in a bottle. And it's lightning in a film. I absolutely love how you seamlessly blend human psychology, science, and storytelling all together. It's almost like you've figured out this master formula to get people to actually listen and pay attention, but also to learn, grow, and to come to their own conclusions without preaching to them, which I think is something that a lot of activists forget about. But within the spectrum of behavior change, I'm really curious, like, how do you even track to know whether or not your film has made a difference on a grand cultural scale like you seem to be aspiring to all the time. One of the metrics that you use to see if you're creating culture changes, you do Google Trends. And in the first nine days, The Game Changer was on iTunes. It was the top watch documentary and independent film nine days in iTunes history. Then in 30 days, it was on Netflix, searches for plant-based diet as a search term went up 350% worldwide. You know, I went to Australia about, well, it was the first week of February, and Australia was one of the most per capita viewed countries in the world of, of game changers. I have no idea why it struck a chord there, but when I landed there, it was very difficult to find somebody that hadn't seen the film. Everybody I talked to at restaurants, coffee shops, had seen the film and changed their diet. The only person I had dinner with a guy that I used to work with at the United Nations, he said, you know, Louie, I haven't seen your film, but I got to see it because if I don't, when I have a a dinner party at my house and it's not vegan, nobody's going to come. So I know that the film, you know, anecdotally, it's in terms of searching metrics, it's been doing phenomenally. But you have to look at a couple things. Like I'm interested in that 10% number, that shift, right? But think about this. Every single person, just every person, One person that becomes plant-based after seeing that film saves three and a half tons of carbon dioxide per year going into the environment. They save about 400,000 gallons of fresh water that doesn't have to be turned into pig slurry. They save 9,000 square feet of area every year that doesn't have to be turned over to wildland that doesn't have to be turned over to land to be used for crops for animals that we're feeding. The average person in America eats about 10,000 animals in their lifetime. So think of all those animals that don't have to lead a life of suffering. And then here's the clincher, 80 to 85% of the chronic diseases that we have are created by eating animal products. It's not anecdotal, by the way. If you go to the places where people live the longest without chronic diseases, the so-called blue zones, 
There's five known blue zones in the world, Okinawa, the island, the immortals, Icaria, Greece, the land where people forget to die. In Italy, there's a Sardinia. Sardinia has more people living or more males living over 100 than by a factor of 30 than any other place in the world. There's the Nagoya Peninsula in Costa Rica and in Loma Linda in California, about 60 miles east of LA, there's this colony of people that are plant-based. So they have like 350 people over 80 years old at the gym. Wow, wow, wow. That's so powerful. You know, I've always scoffed at the idea of, you know, the whole, you just need to change one person's life and that's enough. But when you lay the numbers out like that and you think of the exponential power that stories can have on people, I mean, I just feel all excited again about storytelling. Yeah. I mean, the first rule of filmmaking is you have to be entertaining. If you're just trying to hammer home your idea, you see the agenda right away. You know, I've got an agenda, but if for the first agenda is let's be entertaining. Just tell a really good story. And we're always looking for those characters that can kind of personify that message. I'm working on a film right now that potentially would be about the current pandemic. He hasn't agreed to it yet, but Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible, certainly fills the bill for that. And let me just explain, I guess, a little bit why I think he would be a good candidate. He spent 25 years at Stanford researching cures for cancer. He was part of the team that decrypted the genome by the way that HIV infects other cells. And then he took off 18 months to go on sabbatical. And you know, here's a guy that's trying to cure cancer and actually doing something, getting awards for it. And he's actually a hand in helping stop AIDS. And he's trying to think, what can I do that's important? Because there's going to be another pandemic. Climate change is happening a lot because of uh, our animal production. The biggest question that he felt he could answer as a scientist was not, how do I find vaccination for the next pandemic? It was like, how can you get a vegetable to taste like meat? Because that's what's killing the planet. It's what killing. It's what's killing people. It's what's creating pandemics, and it's what's creating havoc on the, the ecosystem. So if you don't address that, what's the point? And so, I mean, that what a great story, right? What a great sort of hero's journey of what he's actually trying to do. You know, whether you like the product or not, it almost doesn't matter. You want to be rooting for this guy because once you frame the problem, you're for him. You're instinctively for the underdog. He's taking on a multi-trillion-dollar-a-year industry by trying to create this radical idea that we should be eating vegetables to save the world. Yeah, no, that's absolutely phenomenal. So what it really sounds like, though, is you don't actually know what story you're going to tell until you start going down this process. But in order to start making a film, you need to have funding, right? So it's sort of a chicken and egg problem. I'd love for you to kind of go through how you actually pitch an idea that isn't yet fully formed to get all these big stakeholders on board and attract money when really, and, and you said this a little bit earlier, you're focused on the outcome. You're not just trying to sell tickets. You're really just trying to get it seen. So you, you have to learn how to speak these different languages in order to see your projects through. What strategies or tips have you found to be really, really great when pitching these big ideas? First of all, I don't go to any money people and ask for money because I think they're going to make more money. Documentaries are, you know, I tell people that if they want to invest in a film to make money, better off going to Vegas because your odds are better. The Cove, most winning documentary in history, but if we had to pay back the main sponsor of that, we would have lost money. The Racing Extinction, our second film, was the highest price to be paid in the five previous years for a film to come out of Sundance for a documentary. And we made about 37, 38 cents on the dollar. The Game Changers, that film probably will do more good for the planet than just about any other film. And it'll never make money. 
So if you invest in us, you're investing in the message. You're investing in, in social change. So if I'm going to talk to somebody that has a lot of net wealth that can potentially help us, I want to be speaking to people that understand the message. So either you're talking to an environmentalist, talking about the environmental aspects of it. You're talking to a vegan. You're talking about the look at every person you you turn plant based. You're saving depending where you get them in the life cycle up to several thousand animals in a lifetime. So I try to talk to the person and what their interests are. But I don't align myself with just people that have money. I'm looking for people that want to create social change. So I speak to that and I'm speaking with passion. When the VCs have you know 20 minutes of hearing a pitch of somebody in the room with their, their latest device, they're, they're looking for, is it going to work? Are they filling a need that's a gap that's not being filled? And do they have the passion to work through all the obstacles? Because if you don't, if you're not tenacious, if you're not focused in on the end game and don't have the passion to make it succeed no matter what, you're not going to be successful at business or making a film. I'm driven by the passion to try to do some good with the world because I just love what I'm doing. And I think people want to see that. You want to back the horse that wants to run. I want to end on one thing because... The last time we had a conversation, you were talking about how you've sort of been typecasted into the environmentalist and how that's limiting you from telling different stories. I'd, I'd like you to just to cover that because I think it's always humbling to hear when someone who's achieved such success still has struggles to go through. I'd like you to talk through why that may be and what you do to kind of overcome it. Well, you know... Because the Cove had such a profound effect. And I run an organization called the Oceanic Preservation Society, and we had severe mission creep. Our our mission has now expanded way beyond the oceans into terrestrial and global issues. But if we try to do a film, let's say, on saving the forests, you know, people think, well, that's land-based. You know, they associate what I do as like something for the oceans. We're struggling to get that film financed. There's one on that we're working on called She Change. It's about these four female big wave surfers that were trying to get women into the lineup at Mavericks. Mavericks is one of these big, huge, heavy waves, like these one of the, you know, the biggest five killer waves in the world. And women were always ostracized from competition. And these women won their seat at the table of being in, into the surf break. To me, it's like, if we're going to solve a lot of problems, we have to elevate women to their rightful place on the, the planet as being our equals. And I thought, well, what a great story to tell. Like, what wonderful characters, first of all. You know, this wading out into these... I, I've been out there. I was at Mavericks in one of the biggest days of the last 10 years. And it is just frightful. And to be at these mountains of water coming down. You know, I'm at the edge. And this thunderous wave coming through. And they're fighting to get in the lineup like the men. And you think... God, that's a great story. But like that film's a tough one to get financed. And I don't know why, because it's such a great story, such powerful characters. Partly we have to go to a different group of, of people that we normally go to, right? I, I know environmentalists, people in the, the animal rights space. But then when it comes down to women's rights, it's a whole different kind of, you know, I know some really powerful, wealthy women, but like, you know, their foundations are like, well, is there an environmental component to it? No, but it's about women. It's not just about women surfing. It's about women's empowerment. But like it doesn't have an environmental component. So I can't talk to the same people anymore. Just because I have a, a little gold man and a lot of awards behind us doesn't mean that money comes flowing to us. I spend probably 90% of my time looking for money for all these projects. Let's end on three things. I always like to end the podcast in the same way. So what is one ask, one offer, and one question for the world. <laughs> one ask? Wow. 
I don't know. I feel like if you're even on this conversation, being able to even listen to this, it's like you have enough, right? I mean, you know, the, the ask is that you have the wisdom to give yourself the space you need to to be the best version of yourself you possibly can be. The offer is like, you give me that chance, you know, I'll deliver. That's it. And what's the third, sorry. The question for the world. Ah. Uh, what kind of world do you want to leave the place? How do you want to be remembered with the world? And how do you want to leave this world a little bit better because you came this way? Amazing. That's great. Thank you so much. Where can people follow you if they want or follow you? What should they sign up to? Is it a newsletter? Is it a, <laughs> is it a Facebook account? Yeah, I'm kind of at the limit. I, I only have like one of those 5,000, like a personal one. I need to get better at it. OPSociety.org is our website where you can follow what we're doing some of our films and, and see our newsletters. That's probably the best place. Um, but I've got to be a little bit better with social media. <laughs> All right, y'all, that's it for this week. Louis's passion and belief is absolutely infectious. And I hope you feel as excited and empowered as I do. The beauty of storytelling is that it can be practiced by anyone in any field. So be sure to look for the stories that matter in whatever it is that you do. If you're enjoying these podcasts, join our free webinar that takes place every week at 11 a.m. Eastern at impacteverywhere.org slash group, where we talk about all things impact in unexpected places. Next episode, we have architect and designer Mond Q. Mond lives on the intersection of the digital and physical world and is constantly experimenting with different ways to explore how humans and the environment might more effectively coexist. Mond's work is really cool, but you have to see it to understand it. Before next week, go check out his website at unitedmake.com.au and check out his projects. That's unitedmake.com.au. I'm super excited to bring his story and perspective to y'all and hope to see you around this Friday because impact is everywhere.